Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Please turn to Acts 27 with me. This is what I'll be reading today. This is God's word and it is eternally true. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Oneidas, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing uh, that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they'd gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not 
have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it'll turn out exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men, men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes from the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudder and hoisting, and hoisting the foresails to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them could swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. What a chapter! High in drama, rich in detail. It comes very near the end of the book of Acts. We've been in studying, working through this book in a sermon series the last, what, I don't know, seven, eight months. And we're almost at the end. It's this week and next. And then the plan is to move on from here sometime in July to the book of Philippians. It seemed as if it would be a waste to, to turn anywhere else than one of Paul's letters next because we've just benefited from this download of context and appreciation for the Apostle Paul, his ministry, and his labors. And I thought Philippians would be a good church to study what he had on his heart 
for them. Today, though, we have before us the really amazing account of how God delivered Paul and brought him safely through perils at sea to stand trial before Caesar in Rome, just as he had promised to do, and against all odds, as this chapter shows. Paul had spent the previous couple of years um, incarcerated, uh, a prisoner of the Roman Empire in Caesarea of Judea, on the coast of Judea. And he was there because he, was, uh, he, he had the, all, a lot of the Jews, the Jewish leaders and many others, furious with him, hating him, and wanting him dead. And there had stirred up trouble. There had been a great disturbance in the city surrounding him. Uh, Paul almost got beat to death. The Roman authorities got involved to try to mediate. And they could not for the life of them figure out that he had done anything deserving of death or imprisonment. And yet there's all of these people so furious with him. And so the, the balance of power is such in the empire between the occupying forces and the Jews um, that the, wanting to do the Jews a favor and also try to keep the peace, they just left Paul sort of indefinitely detained, just like we do still to this day in Guantanamo Bay. Indefinitely detained, without trial, without, without really charges, or without, any, you know, without a sentence or conviction. There he is, just held. But the conditions were not bad for him. Uh, he's a prisoner, yes, but his friends are given leave to come and visit him and minister to him. He probably has a lot of relationships that he carries on, a lot of work that he carries on from his cell. And it was probably not a very dingy uh, accommodation either for him. And Paul, so he spent those two years there. And then um, after two years, Felix, the governor who had made this decision regarding Paul, is replaced by a new governor named Festus. And Festus is bringing up old cases and trying to clear the decks. And so Paul's case comes up for review. And Festus proposes to Paul that they take this course of action with him. Let's bring you back up to Jerusalem to have you tried before the council. You're a Jew. This seems to be completely a Jewish matter. There's nothing, there's no violation or even a charge that even lands on the Roman, uh, you know, the, the, the laws. It's just like there's nothing here that I know how to deal with. So let's take you back up to Jerusalem and, and see what they make of it, the Jewish council. Uh, Paul knows exactly how that's going to go. They've, been, they've tried this before. And he knows it's likely to be lethal for him because there have been plots against his life. Forty men had tried to assassinate him the last time that he was there. And so he plays his trump card. Paul is a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. And he, is, he enjoys all of the rights and privileges of, of Rome, of citizenship in Rome. And so what he does is he says this to Festus. Festus, I'm standing here before, before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. This is the right of every Roman citizen to have his case heard by the, the top dog, the, the emperor of Rome. That's a kind of a risky move. Because you never know. I mean, if, if, you, don't, if you don't get through him, you, he, or he could just have a, had a, woke up after a bad night's sleep and be grumpy. Um, this is the Emperor Nero that Paul's appealing to. So it's not like a 
a certain outcome for him, but the alternative is seemingly certain. It's going to be grim. Nothing good is going to come from returning to Jerusalem. And this is actually where Paul wants to go and where Jesus has promised that he is to go. And so this seems like his best move. He appeals to Caesar, and Augustus or Festus responds, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Chapter 25, verse 12. That exchange there between Paul and Festus in chapter 25 sets the stage and sets the wheels in motion for the events that transpire here, chapter 27. Uh, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. In order for his appeal to be granted, Rome has to transport their prisoner 1,500 miles by sea to Italy um, to have Paul have his case heard there. Uh, This time of year, though, was not favorable for sailing. As they get into the late summer, the fall, and especially the winter, the wind, the prevailing winds uh, do not, are not conducive to sailing westward. This is very difficult in the Mediterranean back in those days before steam power or machinery to make any progress westward during certain times of the year. And that's what they're facing. And if they get cert- delayed enough, they're going to face severe winter storms, which are notorious on those seas. But for whatever reason, Festus decides this journey is to commence then. So I'll just be honest, spiritual applications from this chapter don't just fall off the bone. At least they haven't for me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to work quickly through this text, enter into the drama, understand better what's going on here, and then come back and ask the question, why on earth is this passage in the Bible? and see if there's some good answers and helps for us spiritually from answering that, okay? Well, the first eight verses tell us how the voyage to Italy got underway and proceeded with difficulty. Paul was not the only prisoner being transported at this time under Julius's uh, watch. Uh, He, with uh, some other prisoners, were Uh, remanded to the custody of this centurion named Julius, and it became his responsibility to escort, manage these charges, and to bring them safely to Rome. Uh, Probably, in some cases, maybe, at least with Paul, to stand trial, but for the most, the rest of them is probably to be executed in the arena. For this first leg of the journey, they had to get connecting flights, as it were, uh, this first leg of the journey, they get aboard an Adramidium ship bound for Asia Minor. Adramidium was a city, or not a city, I, well, yeah, it was a city. If you bring the map up, I'll show where that was from. This Adramidium, it was a city up in the northwestern coast of Turkey. And this, this is where they began on their voyage. And this ship takes them, this leg of the journey, stopping at Sidon, and then to Myra, where they catch a different ship bound for Italy. Though Paul is a prisoner, there's a couple of indications early on of him having pretty special standing and respect of Julius um, and special considerations granted him. On the voyage, he was allowed the uncommon privilege, I have to assume it was uncommon, of having friends and attendants accompany him. Aristarchus, a brother from Thessalonica, joins him on this voyage, and he's, he's a man who appears and is commended by Paul in some of his letters. And we know that Luke is with him because we start to have the word we again. We did this and we did that. And that's always Luke's signature in the book of Acts. We know when he's present. Another indication of Paul's trusted status was the consideration that Julius extends to him at at, uh, 
what's it called? Sidon. At Sidon, their first stop at port, he, uh, Julius gives him the opportunity to go and visit the brethren there and be ministered to by them. Now, this is pretty extraordinary. I don't know if he, Julius sent a soldier and Paul in chains or not, but one way or another, he's out of He's, he's off the ship and he's out there in the city. And if he doesn't make it back in time, there's some stress. But he, he offers them this, this consideration, which is remarkable and a sign of his esteem for Paul. Because Paul, he's responsible for Paul, and it's his neck on the line if he doesn't show up with his prisoner. As they depart Sidon and try to press on, we start to get the indications of the difficulties of the conditions that they're trying to sail under. Luke says they sailed from Sidon, in verse 4, under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. So I've been learning sailing terms this week. The, the, this is the lee of Cyprus. The lee side of an island is the side that's protected from this wind. The windward side is the side where the wind is blowing. Um, if you know more about nautical things, you probably are saying, yeah, that's not quite right, but it's sort of right. Anyway, they do this several times on this journey where they're, they're trying to seek the protection of the wind block or the windbreak provided by an island. And so that's what they do. They sail around that side of Cyprus and they make it as far as Myra and that's where they change ships. Julius gets them or secures passage for them on, for the next leg of the journey on an African ship of Alexandria. This is probably a graining vessel. This is probably their main, trans, what they're transporting is, is grain. Uh, there's a lot of, ex, of trade of grain and wheat between Italy and Turkey and North Africa at that time. So they try again, uh, they, they, they Sorry, from here on, the going gets rougher. Luke tells us in verse 7 that they sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty arrived off Nidus, where the winds prevented them making any further western progress. Uh, so they tried the island windbreak trick one more time, uh, setting a southern course for the lee shore of Cyprus. If you want to see the map again, they sailed down southward. Italy's way up here, but they're trying to make any western progress they can, and they maybe can get a little shelter here from this island. So they sail this way. They pass Salmone and Lacia, and they wind up at, at a harbor here called Fair Havens. So the next verses, 9 through 12, tell how at Fair Havens they uh, face a very difficult decision about whether to proceed any further at this time or not. The ship is held there for a considerable time, it seems, in verse 9. And the fast that Luke mentions, he throws this, this mention, the, the fast had already passed, in fact. This is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a 25-hour fast of the Jews, and that's normally held at the, uh, as the moon would have it, at the end either of September or the beginning of October. And this is like a signpost, a, a, mar a time marker that Luke throws in to show that we're getting into the late season of the year and conditions are only going to get more and more dangerous. That presents a dilemma for this ship and its leaders. And they're trying to figure out, we probably need to winter someplace and wait it out. Not a very different way of experiencing life than you and me. We, we're, we're not used to this level of inconvenience that you could be trying to go to grandma's house and have to spend three months until the weather clears. But here's what they're doing. They're, uh, they're considering where they can spend the winter and wait the weather out to make further progress. Well, this harbor at Fair Havens is pretty exposed to the west and for whatever reason, considered not ideal by the captain and the pilot. And so they're thinking, let's just try 
we're not going to go looking for another island. We're just going to try to make a little progress to the, to the west of this island to a better port in Phoenix. It's, it's more sheltered from the western winds and a better place to spend the winter. Paul is strongly opposed to this idea. Uh, he believed it was ill-advised, and he admonished them, saying, Men, verse 10, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And that's another indication, I think, of Paul's privileged status aboard ship, that here he is at the table talking with the, the leaders, uh, the, the head honchos, about what's going on. Pastor Baker, in our staff meeting where we were discussing this, suggested, well, maybe he was just chained to Julius and <laughs> happened to chime in with his helpful thoughts. I think probably not. Paul had this way about him, and Julius seems to really respect him and to trust him even, and they have a bond that I think is evident in this uh, account. So I think he was looked to, or maybe Julius brought him and said, Paul, what do you think? Anyway, the captain is concerned for his ship and his cargo, doesn't want anything ill to come of the ship, and he's certainly not wrong about the vulnerabilities that the winter presents for them all there. John Calvin cuts Ju uh, Julius some slack in not listening more to the advice of Paul, but following along with the captain and the pilot. Um, he says that it was actually quite prudent of him. He's not a seafaring expert to trust himself to those who are the professionals and experienced sailors. And necessity seemed to be forcing this decision on them. It wasn't a good place to spend the winter. And they're not proposing to go out to sea again, but only to just make a 40-mile journey down the coast under some protection. What could go wrong? The events that follow show that Paul was actually the right one, that they should have listened more to him. Whether he knew what was to come by way of God's revelation or whether he just uses his own good sense and judgment, we don't know. But uh, Paul's foresight at this moment even though it wasn't listened to, greatly commends him to the sail those on board ship later on when they get in real mortal per peril. Well, verses 13 to 20 tell of the hazards that this uh, voyage met with in proceeding onward from Fairhavens and how desperate their situation quickly became. As soon as the favorable wind came up, um, they decided that they had, it says in verse 13, they supposed that they had attained their purpose and they set sail down the coast for Phoenix. But almost immediately, this violent wind rushes down on them from the land. The word in Greek is typhonic. It's like a typhoon wind comes down on them. This is a type of seasonal storm that's uh, common enough that it has its own name, Euroquilo, which means northeaster. And it's what this, the, the historian Pliny calls this storm the, the chief plague of sailors. This is like the nemesis on the Mediterranean of sailors. So all immediately, they are powerless against this wind. They can do nothing but lower the sails and be, allow themselves to be driven along wherever the wind is ready to take them. They're at its mercy and all hope of achieving Phoenix is lost. A small island just to the south called Clauda affords them a brief moment of reprieve. They are able to sail on the lee side of, of Clauda, which I don't think is on the map. 
Um, and here they take three quick precautionary measures for the ship's protection. They haul the ship's boat onto the deck with, some, with great difficulty, and Luke uses the word we as if all, all hands on deck were getting involved in trying to um, secure the ship. Luke himself was involved. The second thing is the sailors undergird the ship with special cabling. Now, I looked this up, see if there were any pictures of this in ancient um, sources or paintings, and I found there's a postage stamp from Egypt, which is featuring a famous uh, voyage of one of Egypt's queens, I won't try to pronounce her name, uh, to a land I won't try to pronounce its name, um, but there it is. And you see on the front, just this, these little lines here, are the kind of cabling that we're talking about. These cables are fastened in stormy conditions to try to hold the timbers of the hull together to keep it from splitting apart or leaking. And so that's what they quickly did as they had a moment to, to get to it. And the last thing they did, afraid that they would, the storm would just keep blowing and they'd blow them all the way to across the sea to the northern shores of Africa where there were shallows and they were probably going to get stuck, uh, maybe way out at sea and, and have no hope for themselves. They lowered the sea anchor, as it says in our NASB translation, but really it's, it's a vague term. It's almost as if Luke didn't really remember what this, he says they lowered the implement in Greek, or something like that, the thingy. <laughs> this is probably like a floating anchor that's more like a parachute drug behind the boat to slow its progress. And they, they use these today in certain instances. So they took those steps quickly as best they could. Uh, this is the best they could to do under the circumstances. And they hoped for the wind to stop. There was nothing more to be done. They were completely at the mercy of this storm. But the wind didn't stop. The next day, as the storm continued to blow, they start throwing things overboard. Uh, things, they jettison the cargo, it says in verse 18. The day after that, they decide to throw over the ship's tackle. We don't know exactly what items they're throwing over, but uh, it's just the idea is they're probably taking on water. They need to lighten the load. And anything that's not absolutely essential to survival, we need to get rid of. Eleven days more proceed. Dreary days and nights. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine the horror of it. Just the constant beating and rocking and swaying and fear and discomfort and agony of that situation. Such a desperate thing to be involved in. They had no idea where they were. The sun and the stars were completely blocked from view. They don't know where to, how to chart their progress. They don't know where to aim themselves as best they can aim. They're just lost. And the ship's leaking badly, most likely. The only possible remedy that they could hope for would be finding land and trying to ram this debilitated ship onto some beach somewhere. That's their best hope of survival. But they're out in the middle of the sea. Bring up this map again, please. They're out in the middle of the sea. That's where that squiggly line is. There ain't nothing around. And they end up, we're going to find, finding in God's providence and with his, 
his superintending of this mission, on that tiny little island of Malta, which is like finding a needle in a haystack. They probably couldn't have sailed there under those conditions if they tried. And God blew them there. Maybe not quite as extreme as, the, as NASA finding the moon at 250,000 miles away. I mean, that's quite a feat. But it's amazing, and God directs them there. Well, verses 21 to 26 tell how Paul worked to give um, these folks uh, hope in the midst of this desperation. The cumulative effect of all of these things is, we read in verse 20, that all hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. So they're just waiting for their doom. And Paul works to give them hope. And not false hope either. Reliable confidence in God's purposes and in the revelation that God gives to him. On the 13th night of this horrible experience, an angel of God appears to Paul in verse 23. It says, he's, and Paul recounts it as he recounts it to the sailors later, he stood before him. So more, more firm and solid a thing than just a, a dream. The angel stood before him and spoke words of reassurance to Paul, a restatement really of what Jesus himself had said to Paul under another, a similarly difficult predicament back in Jerusalem when the heat was on. Jesus said, take courage, Paul. You're going to testify in Rome. And so the angel comes and very similarly gives another, don't fear, Paul. You're going you're to stand before Caesar. But there's an added promise here, an expansion of God's promise to Paul, and that is, I've also granted to you, I love this language, I've granted to you all the lives of those on this ship. Now, I don't know if that means Paul had been asking God for their sake, or if this was just God's way of saying, of showing his power and reinforcing the special blessing and, uh, of, on Paul as a minister of the gospel and reassuring Paul, I've, I'm, you're going to be saved, you're going to make it, and all these people are going to come safely through. So Paul, the next day, stands up in their midst and says, I told you so. Verse 21, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. I, my first thought was that that's pretty obnoxious of Paul. <laughs> and that is the kind of thing that we do and we leave it right there. Well, you know, I told you so. <laughs> and that's pretty cruel, actually. But Paul's not being cruel. Paul is reminding them, I did have wisdom. You should have listened to me when I forecast this very peril. Now, would you please listen to me as I tell you about good things to come from the Lord and have hope and take courage? So it's part of the medicine. It's not just cruel. Verse 22 I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. He recounts the angel's visit, the angel's message, and how everyone has been granted uh, the promise of life with Paul through this voyage and disaster. And then he, he says again in verse 23, Keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. 
And then he adds this last very interesting detail, which is um, specific enough to show them and to indicate the salvation, the particular form of salvation that they're anticipating, but also vague enough to keep them kind of in wonder and suspense. He says, we must run aground on a certain island. That's what God has shown me. Verses 27 to 42, the rest of the chapter, tell us how the word that Paul spoke proved to be true against all odds and in the face of several near disasters. In the middle of the 14th night, as they're being driven about in the midst of the sea, the sailors perceive that they're approaching land. Verse 27. I don't know how they perceived it. Maybe this is some have suggested that there's a, there's a different smell in the air when you're in the vicinity of land. Some have suggested that it's the sound of the breaking waves on reefs or rocks and the shallower waters. Somehow they, in the middle of the night, they perceive, I think land is near. And they start taking soundings of the deep to see how shallow or deep the water is. The first sounding is 20 fathoms, 120 feet, as, I, as Google tells me. Aren't I so smart? I, I Googled that. A little later on, another sounding shows the depth is getting shallower, 15 fathoms or 90 feet. And so here they decide we just need to park it. We have no idea where we are. We're getting in shallower waters. We're at risk of running into things. Let's, they've put out four acres out the stern and they um, just try to hold their position until day can reveal for them what's going on and they can try to avoid catastrophe. At this point, there is a near catastrophe. The sailors try to sneak off and, uh, and leave everybody else to their fate. They see an opportunity to save themselves and they try to take it sneakily. Uh, they try to get under the pretense of letting out additional anchors from the bow. They are getting the boat down into the water to sneak away. And Paul somehow discerns what they're doing. And he, and he says, he raises the alarm and says to the soldiers, if they leave this ship, there is no hope for the rest of you. And so they immediately cut the ropes. That boat would have been come in very handy in just a few hours to try to shuttle people from the reef to the beach. But there it goes. It's better than everyone perishing. So Paul, for whatever reason, knows that everyone has to stay together or this promise that the Lord has made is not going to prove true. That's very interesting. With nothing more to do than to wait for the dawn to come, Paul seizes the opportunity to encourage them to get some food in their bellies. They've not eaten for the last 14 days, um, and Paul is worried about their strength. He says, uh, this is, eat something, this is for your preservation, he urges, for not a hair from your head will perish. There's another word of promise. He's feeding their hearts so that they will feed their bellies and not live in despair. And so Luke includes a little head count here at this point to tell us the scope of, the, of the, the souls on this vessel. There's 276 people on board. That's a pretty big uh, group company. And uh, I think that's probably included there because they probably did a little portioning out of, of ra rationed out the, the, the little bit of bread or wheat uh, that they were able to cobble together before throwing everything else overboard. They probably, that probably stuck in Luke's head because they, he remembered 276 portions were made. 
So they take some food, and they and the dawn appears. And what do they see? But they see they are next to some land that nobody recognizes. There it is. The only hope really for this ship surviving is to run on onto a beach. There's a beach. There's a bay. And God has led them here. It is really remarkable. And so what they do is they get prepared to try to run this thing as, uh, right up to that beach. They, they uh, unhook the, what do they call it? The, loosening the ropes of the rudders. Yeah they, yeah, they do that. They hoist the sail for the wind. They pour out the wheat to lighten the load so it's running as light as it can. And there they go for the beach. And then another sudden <laughs> catastrophe, seemingly. They run aground on a, on a hidden reef, probably right there near the, out, the uh, entrance into the bay. So quite a way still from shore. How is God going to fulfill their promise? The, the waves are, are catching the ship and breaking it up, tearing it to pieces, and it's clear they're going to have to swim for it. And now another catastrophe, at least for Paul and uh, the other prisoners. The, the, just like the sailors wanted to save their own skin, now the soldiers want to look out for their hide because they don't want this being an occasion for the prisoners to escape and then that coming back on them. So they're prepared to just kill all the prisoners right then and there and then make a swim for it. Well, the centurion, again, Paul's godliness and the respect the centurion has for him um, saves the day. And this is one of the things God uses to preserve and fulfill this promise, is, God, is Paul's own reputation with Julius. Julius wants to bring Paul safely through. He cares about him. He cares about this responsibility and this man. And so Julius says, no, everyone who can swim, swim. Those who can't swim, grab something and float your way in, and we'll meet up on the beach. And so that's what they do. And Luke concludes this amazing account with these words, they were all brought safely to the land, just as God had promised. Okay. Why is that there? It's neat. It's interesting. Why is it there? It's easy to explain those, uh, answer those questions often in other parts of scripture. You think of Philippians, where we're going. It's pretty easy to answer why that's there. Here we have this interesting story, but it's not immediately clear what Luke's purpose in including it is. Some people have suggested that it's just for entertainment value, just a little color here at the end of the story. A little dramatic relief or a way of improving the arc of this narrative. Some people have said it's like a nod to classic literature from the period or from ancient times. A Homer's Odyssey had its shipwreck, and this or that author had their shipwreck, and shipwreck stories are, you know, something Luke, Luke's an author, and he has aspirations to be, like, with the cool kids, and so he's got to have a shipwreck story. Yeah, it happened, but he put it in there for that purpose. Some people have said it exists as a kind of parable of the Christian life as a kind of big picture metaphor for things, and that's how it should be read and how we benefit spiritually from it. And there's probably some truth, possibly, to all those things. But I don't think that that's the main reason that Luke has put this passage in Acts for us. I think the main purposes that Luke has in including this account are these. First of all, 
It's true. It happened. And it's an amazing work of God in accomplishing his promises that glorifies him and attests to his power. It's true. It, and there's, it's, it, our faith is based on facts. And it's wonderful to have a passage of Scripture that's just packed full of facts. And it's really, this chapter of Scripture is actually one of the ones that's been most tested against reality to see if it holds up, against experience, against maps, against history, against uh, uh, nautical charts, against weather patterns. There's a man named uh, James Smith back in the mid-1800s who wrote a long dissertation called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And he tested Luke's narrative against nautical charts and all those things. And he even went in person to many of these places and scoped it out to see if it matched up detail for detail with what Luke had recorded. And he found that the details of Luke's account are absolutely rock solid. So much so that this, is, this part of Acts has become one of the main sources for our understanding of ancient seafaring. It's just, it lines up so much. It's, Luke took a real interest in what's going on around him and recorded so much detail, it's uncommon. And it lines up. It's verifiable. The bay, called St. Paul's Bay, where this shipwreck was supposed to happen on Malta, is just like Luke describes it. It's really there. And the, the, uh, the t- underwater topography is just it makes sense of everything that they experienced and discovered. So it's rock solid, fact, right down to the calculations that this gentleman did uh, for how long it would take, how many days and hours and minutes it would take to be blown from that island of Clouda to that place where they started taking their soundings. He thinks he's found that place where it's likely to be based on the depths and the directions of things. And it's 13 days, one hour and 21 minutes under hurricane conditions. Isn't that amazing? Our, this is helpful to us. One good reason that this is here is to remind us that our faith is not based in fancy. It's not, it's not fiction. It's not ephemeral. It happens in history. And there's a couple of things about that. One is we have to deal with it. If it happened in history, and it's verifiable as it is, we have to deal with what God is saying and doing through his word and the reality behind all of these things. Him. But it's also a wonderful reminder that God is involved in your and my life, in the details of our lives, And he carries us through storms. If he does it with Paul, he does it with his people. Uh, Maybe not in such grand ways or dramatic ways, but we all have the storms of our lives. And God is is invested in the details and the circumstances and the hazards and the trouble are not out of his control and they don't throw him off his game. He brings his people through storms. That's the kind of thing he does. As a wonderful reminder that our faith is based on God's actions in time. In 
It's also here, I think, this chapter to impress upon us the reliability of God's promises. This world is full of danger. Are you listening to me, young men? This world is full of danger. The sea is dangerous. Rivers, water is dangerous. Wind is dangerous and not to be trifled with. In my family, I'm the one that has a kind of, tr- uh, kind of dismissive uh, relationship to tornadoes. I grew up in the end or the edge of Tornado Alley in southwest Missouri, and there were tornado things happening all the time, and we're going in the basement, and we never saw one. They were all around, but we never saw one. I never saw one. And so I kind of think that it's never going to happen to me. It was sobering to take a drive down to McCormick's Creek and the track of that very small, relatively small, short-lived tornado. Yes, okay, so the chances of it hitting you in your house are small. But if it does, nothing stands against it. Oh my goodness. That was, that was a sober and helpful wake-up call to me personally. Mike Bowles, uh, the contractors out here uh, that are doing our HVAC back when that line of storms came through, they had a project they were working on up in, was it Shelbyville, Mike? Yeah, Shelbyville. Large facility. They had neared the end of, uh, nearly completed their part, that, that part of their work. And then the storm came through and it lifted the roof. The pressure changed in the building. And it lift, it's a facility a lot like ours, only much bigger. It lifted the roof off the thing, and all of the concrete tilt-up walls fell down. And they spent a couple of days picking up uh, materials that they thought they might be able to use again on, uh, on some other project. And I remember what Mike said was, nothing can stand up against a 180-mile-an-hour wind. I don't care how strong you build it. Sobering. This is the world we live in. Germs, things you can't even see, can kill you in hours. This is the, animals are dangerous. There's danger everywhere. And yes, we've made technological advances, certainly since Paul's time. We're not so dependent on the wind to carry us westward. We can use our, our motors and our gasoline, maybe nuclear power to forge ahead despite the weather, but we are not impervious. This world is full, uh, and those technologies, by the way, they bring in and introduce new dangers, even when they mitigate against other ones. AI is in the news for that very thing. The world is dangerous and you are fragile. And Paul actually shows and demonstrates a healthy respect for the world around him and the hazards of it. Do you remember what he said? Do not go, do not, we shouldn't, this is going to end poorly for us and it's going to result in the loss of cargo and lives. We should not set out under these conditions. That's prudence. That's wisdom. That's a healthy respect for the dangers of this world, which are very real. Do you have such a healthy respect 
I want to speak especially to you young men, risk takers, immortal ones, engine revvers, motorcycle speeders, four-wheeler jumpers, high divers. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in one of his letters, and it says, instruct the young men to be sensible. Young men, be sensible. Be sensible. Be sensible in, in our parking lot especially. This is not the place to impress your friends with your speed. Like that, you could kill a child, and then you're living with that your whole life, and their family, and yours, and all of us. Be sensible. Be sober-minded. Paul respects danger, but he also is not a man paralyzed by fear. He's found that really amazing, faithful, balance between prudence and confidence in God to bring him through whatever danger or peril. And it's amazing. This is an example for us to, to strive for in our life. He knows that God is sovereign over the hazards of life, and he is not living in, in paralyzing fear of the next virus or the next tragedy or hanging on the news and getting all worried about the new diet fad. This is not the Apostle Paul. He is trusting God with his life and even has to live in trust and exercise that faith when there's other idiots responsible for him and he, can't, he has no power over the decision. He can trust God then too. God is faithful to his promises. Against all odds, and in spite of all the worst perils that the sea can throw and hurl, but God, is, he shows himself sovereign, the master of all these things, and is going to accomplish his purposes in spite of them, even through them, and to his glory. Thirdly, this account reminds us that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God promised Paul that he'd bring him and all of the, those on board safely through the storm. And what did Paul do? Sit back and wait for God to prove himself strong? Well, there's a lot of that because they, could, they didn't have anything really they could do. But wherever Paul could do something, he did it. Up to and including saying, if those men leave the ship, this deal is off. God is not going, to, you're not going to survive. And so he's taking action He's encouraging people to eat food. He is hoisting up boats with the rest of them. He's involved, working in the direction of God's promises for his life. And there's a perfect harmony between God, what God promises and pledges to do in our lives and us working. We just saw this in the infant baptisms. Why else would we make, take these vows? Not so that we could stand back and watch God do all of the work, but so that we can depend on him and give ourselves to the work to the best of our ability. These things go together. Faith without works is useless, said James. And Paul shows us that faith 
that lives out in activity. Last thing. This account, I believe, is here to teach us how we should use our faith, the faith God has given us, to strengthen and assure others around us in the midst of life's difficulties. We have difficulties all the time, little and small. And I know my habit is to actually, there's something kind of enjoyable about commiserating with other people and kind of spiraling down. (laughs) Or am I the only perverse person here? (laughs) What we see Paul doing is something very different. He's speaking words of encouragement, strength, help, exhortation, admonishment. Yes, some difficult things he has to say, but it's always for bringing people up to the Lord, to faith. And this is how, this is how we're to minister to one another, from faith to faith. Sometimes, uh, Pastor Max is the one in our church and in our staff, if you don't know this, that's always got, in whatever, in the middle of whatever difficulty, he, he is the one who rises up for us and says something that points us to God and reminds us that God's in control and that he's good and that we can have faith for that in the midst of it. That's what Paul does, and that's what we should do for one another. Because we're all bouncing around with our emotions all the time, and we need to be that kind of strength and that anchor and that kind of bo- that buoy for the faith and the heart and the hope, the confidence of each other in life. This is our duty. This is why God has given us faith. Sometimes it's only just a little sliver (laughs) that we have to go on. But when we speak it, it strengthens not only our own faith and builds it, but others around us. So let's learn from the Apostle Paul. I think these are some of the main reasons that this account was given to us. And may it continue to resonate in our hearts and lives and for us to learn from it and to build our confidence in God who found Malta in the middle of a storm. And he can lead us to his good purposes through all the difficulties that lay in our path. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the study of the book of Acts that you've given us this year. And I pray that you would use it to inspire faith and zeal in us as we consider the gifts, tenacity, and the love of Paul. And I pray that you would raise up from us men and women, boys and girls, who have that kind of faith and that kind of zeal and that kind of love and would shine a great light in this town of your truth out of love and concern for souls, and that there would be a great harvest of belief and revival that comes through your goodness as you move us to have faith for action. In Christ's name we pray, amen.